Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. We alive and well, ready to go. Got a lot of ground to cover today, and uh, so I'm kind of excited. Last week we kicked off this series called Dinner with Jesus, and Brad like started us off. And one thing was really apparent to me, and I started to say this in service last week, and I thought I'm going to save this actually. Uh, Brad is like a foodie. We discovered that last week. He shared like so much detail about restaurants he goes to and where all these experiences and traveled and tasted all sorts of food. This dude, he has like, I, I, you know, like your sense of taste and your sense of smell are very closely connected, right? When I first met Brad, uh, this dude can smell stuff like you wouldn't believe. Uh, we, he has a convertible and he told me one time we were driving down 31 and he was like, the only thing that's wrong, bad about having a convertible is you get all the smells. And I was like, what are you talking about, dude? He's like, I don't know, it's the, the, the way the, 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 the lilacs or the tree flowers or whatever mixed with the asphalt, it just really bothers me. And I'm like, dude. So I always tell this joke, it's not appropriate, but I'm just going to tell you anyways. Like, I always say, Brad, he says, uh, he, he's like, I think a hummingbird farted 30 paces that direction. Like, I mean, he can just, things you shouldn't hear in church, but like that dude can smell anything and everything, and it is just crazy to me. But I, yes, I said hummingbird farted. Uh, <laughs> uh, I am the opposite of Brad. Like I will eat anything and everything except seafood. I hate seafood. It's disgusting. Uh, and I know the rest of you, you can add me to your prayer list. I've tried it. I lived in Florida. Everybody's like, oh, you've just not had good seafood. I lived in Florida where they have good seafood and they like bring me things like, here, try this grouper. And I'd take a bite and be like, no, thank you. You know, and they like all sorts of stuff. And I will say this, like my, my propensity for shrimp somehow is kind of starting to grow a little bit. We ate at Red Lobster this last week. I got a steak. Uh, and I will say this, I looked at a couple of things on the, on the shrimp menu and I thought, I could, maybe, I could maybe eat that, but why? I'd rather get steak. Uh, and so I, I'm just not a, I'm not a fancy eater. I eat McDonald's, and some people are like, that's just not good for you. And I know, look at me. Uh, and I don't miss meals. I eat, I eat well. Uh, I'm not a cook either. Like Brad is a great cook. Like you go, I went over to his house when we were like first becoming friends before we merged the church and all that stuff. And he like was in the kitchen, like had an apron on, kid you not. And uh, was like cooking and doing all sorts of stuff. And like he, he I, I don't remember everything he was making, but it was delicious. And I do remember like he was like taking a lot of energy into making this stuff and he was making it beautiful and it tasted delicious. And that's just not me. That's not who you get in Pastor Matt. You can get that with Pastor Brad. Uh, I like, I grew up and like the cooking tips that I can give you are, are pretty, are pretty nil. Like I have a few things that I take pride in how I make them. Mashed potatoes is something I'm, I can make a mean mashed potato. Let me tell you what, uh, and you could probably make it better, but uh, I can make mashed potatoes. I, my mac and cheese skills are off the charts. Um, I, I, I love sweet tea and I grew up in a home where sweet tea was like a staple item. And so we would have sweet tea and milk always in the refrigerator. They were so synonymous to me that I, they were both beverages that you drank. That one time when I was a kid, we ran out of milk for cereal. I put sweet tea in the cereal. I thought it should work. 
It doesn't. Uh, and so, you know, sweet tea is something I, I, I will say this. We have a refrigerator backstage over here, and I usually have a gallon of sweet tea sitting back there. And a friend of mine named Jen last night, we were over at their house with my wife and I were over at our friend's house, and she was telling me about how she likes sweet tea. So I shared some sweet tea with her. I won't share with all of you. Uh, but I did share some with her this morning because she's from the South and she knows good sweet tea. Uh, but I can make a mean sweet tea. And then there's also something else that I grew up on. And I don't know, I, I'm learning that this is not a popular food choice. So I went and found an old commercial that, that, that celebrated this food item. And I could not find a video online that when I downloaded it, the audio and the video would stay synced up. It just kept getting messed up. So I'm just going to point that out to you so it can bother you the whole time you watch this commercial. Uh, but check this out. See if you've ever heard of this stuff. I want my cocoa wheat. Cocoa wheat? What's that? Not cuckoo wheat. Cocoa wheat. Tastes <laughs> like hot cocoa, and it's part of this complete breakfast. Cocoa wheat, cocoa wheat can't be beat. It's the baby hot sir with the cocoa treat to be big and strong. Have lots of fun. Eat cocoa wheat, everyone. It's cocoa wheat. Cocoa wheat, bird brain. Ask for yummy cocoa wheats today. <laughs> Anybody else eat cocoa wheats? Yes, you're my people. Yes, cocoa wheats is a, that's it's delicious, and that song will get stuck in your head. Brad and I sang it all day Tuesdays, like cocoa wheats, cocoa wheats can't be beat. Yeah, it'll get in there, and you'll be stuck with it. Uh, as a, as a kid, my mom, that was like a special breakfast item. That like, and I don't know if we, we didn't have a whole lot as kids. I'm learning that as you get older. I'm like, oh, we may have been poor. Uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I know we were. Uh, I could tell you other stories, but we don't have time for that. Uh, and so cocoa weeds, I didn't know. Maybe it was like just for us poor people or whatever, but it's delicious. And if you've never fed it to your children, you need to. It is good. And it is a delicious, creamy treat that can't be beat. Okay? So... Uh, you do not want to spare your kids some cocoa weeds. You can find it in Kroger. And uh, there is a secret to making good cocoa weeds. And I'm just going to tell you, this is my cooking tip for you uh, for the day. And, uh, and this is something that I hope happens for all of you this week. Did anybody last week following Brad's teaching feel like they should go to Five Guys? Yes. We ate Five Guys last Sunday night because Brad mentioned it. I hope that someone goes out this week and finds cocoa weeds on the shelf. <laughs> and feeds it to their children, and watches their lives be transformed. Uh, that's what we're here for, it inspires, transforming lives. And uh, cocoa wheats, if you pay close attention to the back of the box, they have instructions on how to make them. Follow the instructions, and you will be tempted to leave out the salt that it says. It's just a pinch of salt, basically. But if you leave that out, your cocoa wheats will fall short of the glory of God. So, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So, uh, Anyways, get you some cocoa weeds. Try that out. That's my cooking tip for you today. I don't have much for you, as you can tell. So uh, anyways, one of the things that we're doing with this series, we're calling it Dinner with Jesus. And, and the, the, the point of this series, if we can be honest with you, is like, is there anything we can learn from the meals that Jesus shares with people? Is there anything that we can learn about Jesus or about uh, what Jesus was up to if we were to look at the meals that he shares with people? Now, we call this series Dinner with Jesus, but I'm going to be honest with you. Today, we're going to be talking about breakfast. I had to divert. Uh, and uh, there's a story in the scriptures where we learn about Peter, and Peter has a meal with Jesus. Now, I'm going to assume that Peter had a lot of meals with Jesus. 
I'm going to assume that he, this was not just this one singular meal because Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus. Traveled with him, was one of his like inner circle disciples. Like he had the 12, and then there was like three that were way closer to Jesus and spent a lot of time around Jesus, and Peter was in that circle. Uh, there's a couple of different accounts where Jesus and Peter's uh, paths cross. Uh, like there's a, and I like to tell people like it was when you when you hear the stories of the scriptures you have to remember that like uh, sometimes you can get confused about what the Bible is uh, the Bible is written by real people in a real place in a real time I, I know sometimes you think of the Bible as being God's holy word and it is and he, but it didn't just fall from heaven and God was like here's my word. Like, no, he, he spoke through people. And so these people had reasons for writing what they wrote. They had reasons for including the things they included. And they had reasons for keeping things out. Sometimes people will look at the Bible and they say, well, uh, this guy says this. And this guy tells the story a little bit differently. And I'm like, well, clearly you must not have family members. Try to ask them how, a, how Thanksgiving went. And what story and how they tell the story and what gets added and what's, what gets changed. And you know, different perspectives. These, the guys that wrote these scriptures all had different reasons. Like, like Matthew, when he tells the story of the scriptures, you know, he has the, his, his, like, his initiative is to try to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the eternal king. And like he was writing to a specific audience and his, his specific audience was primarily a Jewish group of people. So he was telling the story to a group of people and the words he would use would make sense to them. And like, so you have Mark when he wrote, you know, he was presenting his, his stories and his stuff was, it was with this initiative to try to present the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus and his audience. It was, it was a little different. It was written to Christians in Rome. So again, talking to Roman people versus a Jewish audience, you'd have different ways of explaining these things. Uh, I'm just, this is all extra credit for you. Like Luke, he, he has a whole other thing. He's, he's trying to give an accurate account for the life of Jesus Christ and present Christ as the perfect human and savior. And he's actually writing for one dude named Theophilus. Theophilus was probably a, a wealthy dude and was wanting to, to gather up as much as he could about Jesus. He was trying to learn as much. So he commissions uh, Luke to go and write all these things out. Or like John, today we're going to be in John chapter 1. Uh, John, he was trying to prove conclusively that Jesus was the Son of God and that all who believe in him would have eternal life. And his audience was all sorts of uh, new Christians and people who were searching, maybe people who were not necessarily sure if they were going to believe in Jesus. So John has a whole different initiative. And so like, if you look about the story of Peter, there's two different accounts where Peter becomes a follower of Jesus. Matthew says that when Jesus calls Peter, him and his brother were together, and they just dropped their nets and began to follow Jesus. That's how Matthew tells the story. Like, Jesus says, hey, Peter, follow me. And he's like, let's do this. Right? Now, John tells the story a little bit differently. John says that there was the, the experience of Peter beginning to follow Jesus actually began with a really cool story. And I believe that after this story happens, I'm sure they probably just dropped their nets and followed Jesus. But he says that Jesus was coming along to teach, and he approaches John and his brother, and said, or uh, Peter and his brother, and says, "Hey, I need to borrow your boat because I don't know. You may have heard stories about Jesus getting in people's boats to get away from the the edge of the the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he would teach in these boats so he could talk to people because the shorelines might dip down, and it kind of made a natural amphitheater. So Jesus would just get in these boats and he'd begin teaching." And so John tells us that Peter kind of lends his boat to Jesus and uh, 
They, they'd spent a whole night fishing and didn't have much experience or didn't have much luck with fishing. And at the end of the teaching, Jesus says, set out in the waters. And long story short, they go out in the waters and they've had like no luck. And Peter and his brothers are all there. And Jesus is like, well, why don't you guys try dropping your nets? And then Peter does like you or I would do who just met this dude. Dude, we've been doing this all night. We've been fishing for a minute. And let me tell you something. I am tired Last thing I want to do is drop these nets. I did a bunch of research on the fishing process. I got way distracted this week, guys, on this. It's really interesting. Uh, because uh, when they tell the stories about how these guys would fish, it, this isn't a fishing line. And I kind of always thought that they just like, would drop a net. And they'd drop the net. And then they'd like, kind of pick up the net. And then it would all kind of go. Uh, most teachers of this have talked about how they believe that the, the practice of fishing was trammel line fishing. And they would drop out nets and they'd get a couple of boats would drop these nets out. And then they would throw these other nets in like a, a big old loop net that would go down. And I, this is what I was told by a couple of different experts. They're like, the guys in the boats would literally dive down to grab the bottoms of nets sometimes to kind of seal it up and to bring it all up. And so like, I imagine like if you've been jumping in water and you've been doing, dealing, even just dealing with a net at all whatsoever, like the last thing you want to do is do this more often. Like, no, I don't want to throw the nets out right now, Jesus. But they listened to him. Okay, teacher, we'll do this. When we are the fishermen, you should just stick to studying the scriptures, right? Like stay in your lane, Jesus. Uh, and so they throw their nets overboard, and the story tells us that they had so much fish, it was crazy. And that right there was the beginning of Peter and his brother beginning to follow Jesus. They're like, okay, something's up with this guy. We're in, right? So this is how the, the, the account of John uh, tells us about how, uh, or I'm sorry, the account of Luke tells us about how these two brothers come into play with Jesus. They catch this boatload of fish. And from there on, Peter is really passionate about following Jesus. Like Peter is like the guy who's the first one to raise his hand when the questions pop up. Like, what do you guys think about this? Sometimes he even answers without raising his hand, I'm sure. Like he was the dude who was probably a little bit com competitive, uh, there was two other brothers that were following Jesus. Um, James and John were part of this group. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, John, we're going to be reading his account today. John always called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like he's writing his own account. And rather than writing his own name, like I was there, he'll say, well, the disciple that Jesus loved. <laughs> or my favorite is if you read the Easter story, John will say the Peter and John were running to the tomb, and the disciple that Jesus loved got there first. That's just a way of saying, I'm faster than you, Peter. <laughs> you know, like, this is the kind of stuff that, that John throws in there. And uh, so John, he's telling the story of, of Peter. Now, uh, Peter was a competitive dude. I just believe it. Uh, I'm sure he wanted to be the first. I would have loved this dude. Like, he wanted to be the first. He wanted to, to make sure he had his, his game straight. He wanted to be on top of it. Peter's also the guy that uh, the, 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 the scriptures tell us, different accounts tell us that he walked on water like you do. Uh, he got out of the boat. He told Jesus, if that's you, and there was a big storm going down, and he said he sees, they see someone out on the water, and you may have heard the story. Peter's like, Lord, if that's you, call me out on the water. And, he, and Jesus says, come to me. And so Peter just like, all right, let's do this. And he hops out of the boat. The scriptures tell us different eyewitness accounts. People say he walked on water for a little bit, and then he begins to sink. Now, 
pastors love to preach this passage about Peter walking on water and how he sinks. And they'll like say stuff like, you know, he took his eyes off the Lord. Or I mean, there's all sorts of things out there that they'll explain why Peter began to sink. But I, and I will also say this, like lots of times I think people tell the story like Peter got back in the boat. And could you imagine like, oh, I failed. I sunk. I was in the water. I got wet. I lost faith. You know, Jesus even says like, oh, you have little faith, you know. And I imagine like, lots of times it gets taught like Peter was like, they're wet, soaking wet, a little bummed. I don't think Peter was like that, if I'm really honest with you. I imagine him being as competitive as he was. I imagine him getting back on the boat and being like, <laughs> you boys see that? <laughs> None of you had that in you. I had enough faith, you know? Or like some moments, like some of the other guys, like, yeah, Peter, what's it like to get a little wet? And, you know, why don't you jump over again? Took a couple steps, boys, you know? The rest of you are a little weak. I took some steps. You've never done that. That's how I imagine Peter, with a little bit of, you know, a little bit of pride that he had enough faith to follow Jesus. He's also the guy who tells Jesus, I will never deny you. I'm going to go all out for you. I'm going to live. You know, I, I will die with you, Jesus. We will ride and die. You know, like this is my crew. And then Jesus says, yeah, but honestly, before morning, you're going to deny me three times. And uh, it happens. I mean, to the degree, like, it's not just like you're going to deny me three times. Like, a middle school girl is going to intimidate you into denying Jesus. Like, that's how weak you are, Peter. Uh, and, I mean, this is, the, this, is where, this is the story of Peter. This is who he is. And Peter, after, after the, the crucifixion of Jesus, after the crucifixion of Jesus, I imagine he felt very deflated. I imagine he felt a very sense of, a huge sense of shame and maybe embarrassment because he knew that in Jesus' greatest moment of greatest need, he didn't come through for him. He wasn't there for them, and he did. He denied Jesus three times. And following the resurrection, there's a couple of different instances where uh, different writers will tell us that Jesus appeared to the disciples. And, and I'll just tell you, there's some interesting stuff about the, the, the legend of John who wrote this account for us today. Uh, John actually was the disciple who lived the longest. Uh, the, a lot of the other disciples were martyred or crucified or beheaded or killed. And John, didn't, that didn't happen to him. And he lived a long time. And one of the early kind of traditions, the belief was that John was going to live until Jesus returned. And so people held on to this belief that John's going to live, he's going to be around, and he's going to be there to like high five Jesus when he comes back. And uh, then John ends up passing away. And people were like, well, you know, that's, Jesus actually never said that, Jesus, that John was going to live all the way until that, uh, but we just kind of hoped and we were you know, making some assumptions. And so there's this add-on to the book of John, chapter 21, that if you were to read the book of John, uh, for those of you who are like the Bible scholars in the rooms, this is, this is a little nugget for you. Uh, if you were to read the book of John, most scholars believe that the book actually ended originally in chapter 21, or chapter 20. And chapter 21 was added because it was a story that was not included by John in his original telling of the story, because John actually says he leaves out all sorts of stuff, but he has a purpose that he was trying to communicate. And so there's one story that he left out uh, of the actual writings, and then he added this part of the story on post uh, after he dies to tell another one last story. Uh, and some people believe that this story was actually included to help clear up for people who had doubts about the legend of John. And so that's a little bit of stuff that's happening here. Now, John chapter 21, uh, 
the, 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 the disciples, it starts off, and I invite you, if you want to, you can get your phone out, Bible.com or whatever you want, and you can, you can check this out. I do this often. I give you the New Revised Gaylor version because, let's be real, I talk too long, and I don't have time to read you every verse. And so you get the condensed version. So John, at the beginning of chapter 1, you can see here on the screen, we have starting here in verse 15. The beginning of the chapter has the disciples deciding that they're going to go out fishing. Now, Jesus had appeared to the disciples. It's believed that he had already appeared to them a few times. They were like, it felt like that maybe the disciples may have been lacking direction or not entirely sure what was next. They just knew they were waiting for some direction and, and knowing where to go. Uh, and so Peter tells the disciples, like, hey, guys, I'm going fishing. And, you know, again, sometimes with pastors, it makes a really good sermon, by the way, that you tell the story about how, like, Peter and the disciples, they go fishing because they're supposed to be out on this grand mission converting people to follow Jesus, but instead they go back to what they know. And, uh, but the reality is, is that there's a good chance that the reason why they went fishing had nothing to do with a lack of obedience and actually had way more to do with the fact they needed to pay some bills. Uh, because these boys were fishermen, and now that Jesus was gone... Uh, support had dried up, and they had been living in this kind of communal group, living with the movement of Jesus. And it felt like that movement had ended at the death of Jesus, and a lot of people had scattered. So now they're like, okay, we, need, we still have families. We need to feed some people. We need to get this stuff out. And so uh, they, Peter tells people, hey, I'm going to go fishing. And some of the disciples say, okay, I'm in. Let's go. Now, remember, more than one disciple was a fisherman at the time uh, when they were called to, to follow Jesus. And so they go out fishing. They're out there all night, they fish, and they're not having a whole lot of luck. Sounds familiar, right? They're not having a whole lot of luck, they keep fishing, they're not finding a whole lot of stuff going down, and so they're like, this stinks, and as the dawn begins to, uh, as the morning starts to come, uh, the, the, the disciples see a guy out on the shoreline, and they don't, they can't quite tell who it is, but the guy yells out to them and gives them some instructions, like, you know, the guy on the sidelines who's not really in the game, you know, like, going to tell us how to fish. We're the ones in the boat, dude. Shut up, you know. And the guy says, hey, uh, basically, this is how I see the story. You guys have any luck? No, we're not catching anything. Shut up. Uh, and he was like, why don't you try throwing the net out the other side of the boat? To which most of you would hear that and you'd be like, dude, like, that's like fishing 101. That is not going to work. You know, just going to the other side of the boat, the fish aren't just like not here and then they're going to be over here. Like, that's not that much distance. Like, come on, guys. Like, just, okay, champ, just be still. But the disciples had spent enough time around Jesus. They'd seen all sorts of miracles. They'd seen all sorts of things happen. And so they weren't skeptics. They're like, all right, we'll do it. So they take the, the, the nets and they throw them to the other side of the boat and they end up having so much fish that they have to call the other boat to get, help them haul in the catch of the fish. And Peter, he's like, as they're trying to deal with all this stuff, uh, Peter and John are both there present in the story. And uh, John tells us that John recognizes who it is and says, it's the Lord which I love, by the way, just a little side note. Remember the rivalry between Peter and John? It's like no one else knew who it was, but I was the first one. Like I knew that's our boy Jesus. You know, it's the Lord, right? And so Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. And then when he gets to the shoreline, uh, he finds that Jesus is there. There's a fire made and uh, 
they end up taking some of the fish, and here comes all the other guys with the boat, and they drag their catch up onto the shore, and they're dealing with all that. Could you imagine, just for a second, though, just to be honest, could you imagine, like, we all have different personalities, and, like, we need to be connected to each other. There's some power in us being connected. Could you imagine being one of the other disciples who are, like, dealing with the fish? Like, Peter, dude, we could have used some help, some help here. You know, you're off taking off, following Jesus, and here we are just trying, like, someone's got to bring the fish in. You're the, it was your idea in the first place. Just saying, you know, could you imagine being those other disciples sometimes? Like, those are the responsible disciples, you know, and then there's the crazy one like Peter off running around. Uh, so, uh, now, they, they make some food, they eat, and another thing that's really interesting is, they, and this is just a little side note, the disi- it didn't look exactly like Jesus, but they all knew it was Jesus. Something that's really interesting is that John includes that detail, because they could have just said it was Jesus, he was there. But they include this detail that it wasn't, they knew it was Jesus in their hearts, but it didn't look just like Jesus had always looked. It's an interesting thing to include, isn't it? Because like sometimes you think you know, oh, Jesus has to look this way. But like sometimes there's, a, there's this thing inside your spirit that's like, I think this is God leading me. This is God, this is something that's, I feel like this is the Lord, but it doesn't look like or it doesn't sound like, it doesn't, it's not exactly the same. I think it's interesting they include that. Now, here's the part that I want to share with you today. You're like, we're just getting started? Yeah, check this out. Now, this is where Peter, uh, and if you read in your scriptures, it'll have a little heading. Sometimes they'll put headings over groups of verses to kind of help break it down for you to be able to understand what's going on. The heading says, this is Peter, uh, Jesus reinstates Peter. And he says this, when they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter. Now remember, Peter denied Jesus three times, okay? And so Peter, probably, again, feeling a little bit like a failure, wondering what his role is in this thing. Can I even be used? I've screwed up pretty bad here. Jesus says, uh, says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, making sure that no one gets confused as to which one we're talking about, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And I, Peter's by this time saying, you know my name, I'm glad. <laughs> we get it. He says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you, or when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death in which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Now, there's like 65 sermons I could give you out of this passage. Because you notice how Jesus gives him a different example, sheep and lambs and, you know, feed my sheep. And you can go through and try to understand which one. Most people believe that there actually isn't a whole lot of indication, even though there's different stuff there. And then other people will point out that, like, the, the different, the word love, there's a different word for Greek each time. Phileo, and they'll point those things out. And most scholars, like, you can, you can dig there and you can say, well, maybe Jesus is trying to show the different layers of love. Like, do you love me a little bit? Do you love me a lot? Do you love me more than these people? And then you can, you can play all those different things out. Most people don't believe that there's a whole lot of dis- distinctions between the type of love. 
they were just trying to paint the picture of what was going down here. But something that's very interesting to me is that he indicates to Peter what his life will look like moving forward. And he's, basically, he's showing Peter that you're going to follow my example and you actually will probably lose your life because of me. And it's interesting because Peter, when faced with the question, are you one of his people, Peter had a fear that he was going to get treated the same way Jesus was and he was going to get crucified and or he was going to be put on the chopping block with Jesus and he denies Jesus and runs the other direction. But in this example, Jesus looks to him and says, listen, I know that happened. That's your story. That's the past. I just want to let you know in the future, you won't fail again. You, you will be strong. It's as if he takes all three denials and he restores him, like asks him three times. Basically a chance to, like, to relive each one of those questions that was already asked to him. And he said, no, I'm not with him. No, I don't know this guy. No, that's not my, that's not my rabbi. And he gives him a chance to basically amend all of those accounts. And I think there's some lessons we can learn from Peter that are just fantastic. And one is this, not every experience of following Jesus is a walking on water experience. Like not every time when you follow Jesus, is it going to be like, I'm getting out of the boat and look at me, I'm stepping out on the water. Like Peter does some, some stuff following Jesus that was like the mundane stuff, like gathering food baskets, and he was doing all sorts of just the mundane tasks. And then there was like the, the really big deal moments when he was... You know, they're, they're present, and he sees, like, he sees some crazy stuff going down where he's with Jesus, and the Spirit of God comes around. And then there's just the, the simple everyday tasks. Like, sometimes we get caught up in our heads with this idea of following Jesus, though it is like an epic tale. The thing that makes the story so great isn't just that there was some fantastic stuff that happens, but sometimes the valleys are what make the story so great. That's the, those are the moments when you get to see God come through because you, you've gone through the valley. You've gone through the darkness and God was faithful and brought you through. And so there's something you can learn from Peter, like not every experience, like he knew like this isn't always going to be fantastic. Like it wasn't like he saw like the Jesus on the shoreline. He's like, Lord, if that's you, call me out onto the water so I can, don't have to swim. Like, it's not like he did that. Have you ever seen that little lizard that can run on the water? Like, that's how I would be trying to walk on water, you know? Like, you ever gone to the swimming pool and you tried to run off the side? As a kid, I mean, we used to do this. You, like, try to run off the side and make it look like you were running on the water. Like, I, like Peter doesn't try any of those tricks. He just don't, jumps in and he's going after Jesus. He's going to follow him. Someone says, that's the Lord. I'm going. Not every experience is going to be this grand huge moment where all of the world's going to be turned upside down and people are going to be telling stories of it forever. Sometimes it's just the simple stuff. Sometimes you're just picking up baskets. Sometimes you're just making a bed for a family that's staying in your church building. Sometimes it's the, the simple stuff of you're going to make a meal and you're going to drop it off and you're just going to love somebody. And then other times there are these, there, there are these big moments that change the trajectory and the course of your life forever. And we learn from Peter that, you know, sometimes you'll get wet accidentally. Like you, you won't, you, sometimes you will sink. Sometimes you will fail. Sometimes you will mess up. 
It's just part of the journey. And the, the other thing that I think we can learn from Jesus is a failure is no reason to stop pursuing Jesus. I know like I, I have had, I have people that I love deeply who have given the Jesus, like trying to follow Jesus. They tried and they were like, I'm going after, I'm going to follow Jesus. And then they experienced some sort of failure that they felt like was a, was a, a gross sin. Like I'm going to follow Jesus and then I'm going to, then they messed up somewhere. And that, that moment of messing up, they felt like they'd failed and they'd failed Jesus. And they were just like, I can't do this. I'm done. I have stories in my family. There's a, there's a legend or a tall tale of my grandfather who was trying to follow Jesus. And they were on their way to church one day. And I, I've, I've heard the story's true. I've heard it's false. So if I have family members listening to the podcast, forgive me. I'm going off what I heard. Okay. Uh, and my grandpa would never talk about it with me. Uh, but there's a story that he was, he, he was trying to go to church. He'd given his heart to the Lord. And they were trying to back out of the driveway to head to church. And he got stuck in the snow in the driveway. And on his way out, he dropped an F-bomb because he was stuck. And what I was told was after he dropped the colorful language, he got in the car, turned it off, walked in the house, and never went to church again. Failure is no reason to stop pursuing Jesus, guys. You know those moments when you struggle? The thing you're wrestling with? Sometimes there's a secret sin or there's something out there that you're just, you, you know it's not the way God wants life to look like for you. But you just keep feeling like you're struggling with it and you're wrestling with it. That's no reason to stop pursuing Jesus. I mean, Peter does something that like most of us would be like, well, at least I didn't deny Jesus. I'm better than that. You know, I, I may struggle, but I've never once said, no, I'm not with him, or no, I don't know Jesus, or cursed his name and wanted nothing to do with him. I'm not that bad. Peter does that, and Peter shows us that, like, he shows us something about Jesus. Now, remember, in this series, we're talking about what can we learn from the meals that Jesus has with people. In this meal, Peter shows us something as much as Jesus shows us, because Peter has done the thing. Peter has fallen short, and he is pursuing Jesus. It tells us something about the nature and character of Jesus. Like, to, if we're honest with ourselves, in our culture and church world, lots of times we are communicating to our culture what Jesus is about. And so when people hear or they fail, they run from the church because they're afraid that if they come and they darken the doors of the church or an old lumberyard, that they will, you know, that they'll be judged, there'll be, there'll be condemnation, there's going to be all sorts of shame that gets heaped up on you, and then you're going to have that sense of guilt, and it's all going to get attached to you, and that can become the message that we're teaching as a church. That can become the message of who Jesus is, but Jesus has never once said that. He's never revealed that in his character. He shows us, like, what uh, Peter should have been like, that's the Lord, and jumped out the other side of the boat. Like, if you were living in today's church, that's how that might have worked. Like, oh, goodness, jump out. I got to get away. I messed up. I got to hide. I got to be in shame. I got to keep it secret. Like, sometimes the most powerful thing we can do when we're struggling with something is to tell someone, to be honest about it, to be open about it. But in church world, we can kind of sometimes create a culture where secretive, like, like it's, it's like DEFCON 5 or something about all the things you mess up on. Because you're afraid. But that's not the nature or character of Jesus. That's not what we see in this meal. So, so much to the degree that when Peter knows what he's done, he pursues Jesus 
and wants to be reconciled with Jesus. And Jesus never once does Jesus say anything to Peter about all the jacked up stuff that he's done in his past, does he? It's as if, and I know this is going to sound controversial, but it's as if, it's as if Jesus had already forgiven him. He just, Peter just needed to realize he'd been forgiven. Is that interesting? Like I have kids, and I'll use this story, and, and maybe you will, hopefully you'll hear what I'm saying and not get mad at me, because I know there's some theological debates that can go with this. But it, I have kids, and they'll fight. They'll get into it, and one of them will do something to the other. And it's not like one's always good and the other one's always bad. Like, no, they're, they're both bad. Uh, <laughs> but they'll fight, and their things will happen, or they'll do stuff that you're just like, I know that's out of bounds. You shouldn't do that stuff. But you know what? Never once does their status or my love for them ever come into call or jeopardy. And like, it's as if like those moments when you, they repent or they say they're sorry or whatever, those things mend the relationship. But it's as if the grace was always on the table. Peter just had to be willing to pick it up. Does that make sense? Now, I know that for some of you, you're like, okay, if you grew up in church world, you're like, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like once you're saved, you're always saved. And if you don't even know what that is, don't worry about it. Because uh, that can just go, that can take you places all, you know. I don't necessarily believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. I believe people have a choice. And I believe that people can walk away from the table. The table's always made, it's always set, it's always there, and Jesus is inviting you to the table. But part of the reconciliation, part of the, the relationship that Jesus has is that you have to pursue Him. You have to stay in this pursuit, and your failures are no reason to push away from the table. Your failures are no reason to push away from the table because Jesus invites you. He says, you are mine. Have a seat. Now let's deal with this. Let's deal with it. The, uh, you know, Peter hears it's the Lord and he goes after him. You know, he's, he's going full tilt boogie for it. And, and to the degree that like the, the, we learn about weaknesses and failures from this story and what Jesus does with them. And he talks about his grace talks about his love. Uh, there's another writer named Paul who later is writing to a group of people in Corinth, and he says this. Uh, he's, uh, he feels like Jesus is talking to him about uh, some issues that he has in his life, and he has this thorn in the flesh he talks about and how this thing kind of is a weakness of his, and it keeps him from being able to thrive and, and take off. And uh, Jesus said, he has this moment where he feels like Jesus says this, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. Paul says, I will boast the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. I'm delighting in sinning and doing whatever, but I delight in the fact that he's not perfect because God's grace, you know, the insults, the hardship, the persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am made strong. You may have heard this passage before. Like your weaknesses, your failures are no reason to run from Jesus. And lastly, because I'm running out of time, there's a, there's a whole conversation about this passage and this story and what it's, what it's alluding to. And those of you who are the Bible nerds in the room, I think you'll enjoy this. Uh, there's, in, in the beginning part of the, the passage, which I didn't show you, you can read it, Google it later, uh, the, the first few verses in 1 through 14 talks about the fish coming up. And it says that they caught the fish and they bring the net over and there's a ton of fish in there. And John mentions 
kind of offhandedly that there were 153 fish in the net. To which, if you're, a, if you're a scholar or you're reading this stuff, you ask the question, why include the number? Right? Like, why on earth is that included? Like, you just said it was a full net. They did a good job, you know? Jesus brought on the fish, you know? There's other ways to say this. But the 153 fish is, is interesting because it's pointing to something. And most scholars believe that it's actually pointing to an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, which you find in Ezekiel chapter 47. In Ezekiel chapter 47 is an interesting read in general, and you may even enjoy it. I'm not, again, we don't have time because they're going to be mad at us in the kids' classrooms if we don't hurry up. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, the beginning of it, talks about how in the age of the Messiah, when the Messiah's reign comes into fruition, there's going to be this river that's going to flow out from underneath the temple. It's going to come out of the foundations. Again, I'm giving you the new revised Gaylor version. It's going to come out of the foundations. And Ezekiel tells us that they're basically the, the one who's leading him through this prophecy and showing him and revealing him to this takes him out and they're following the river. And it's flowing eastward out of the, because the temple was believed to face east, which is an interesting thing because when Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden, they were sent east of Eden. So this river is going to flow eastward. And the, the guy in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel keeps saying that the guy was measuring. He'd measure a certain distance, and then he'd walk, and it was ankle deep, and it was knee deep, and it comes tight, and it was so deep he couldn't cross the river. And it uh, talks about how the water is going to go down into the Dead Sea, which I don't know if you're aware, there's a Dead Sea literally over there near uh, where most of the, the accounts of Jesus takes place. The Dead Sea had nothing in it. It was a dead sea. That's why they called it that. And uh, the passage says that the water, when it reaches the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea was going to thrive and it was going to come back to life. And there was going to be fish that would begin to grow in this sea. And that there was going to be so many fish, the fishermen, check this out, fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enigleum, whatever that is. I looked it up, I couldn't find the exact spot. Uh, there will be places... Uh, uh, there will be places uh, uh, for spreading nets. These fishermen are going to line the shores of the Dead Sea. The fish will be so many, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. And he said to me, the waters will flow towards the eastern region and go down into Abram, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it enters into, uh, empties into the Dead Sea or the sea, the salty water will become fresh and swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Now, most people, remember talking about this John passage, connect this to this Ezekiel passage, talking about when the Messiah's reign comes into fruition. There's an a early, early, he lived in the 300s, uh, commentary, a guy named Jerome, who wrote a commentary on the book of Ezekiel. He connects the story of Jesus that was shared in the book of John. He says uh, that the writers of nature and the properties of animals who have learned fishing in either Latin or in Greek, and he names this dude like we all know him, uh, one of whom is the most learned poet, Opanasius Silix. Like everybody was like, oh yeah, I know him. <laughs> Saw him on NBC the other day, you know. Uh, so he, he names this guy, say that there were roughly around 153 species of fish. Interesting, huh? So when John mentions that this story 
of the fish, and the fish are caught from the sea. There's 153 fish that were caught, and they roughly is believed that they thought that around that time, now again, things changed, but around that time it was believed that there were 153 types of fish who were living on the earth. John's trying to communicate to us that this message of grace, this message of love, this, this transformational when life springs forth and makes things that were dead come to life, this isn't just for some people. This isn't just for the people who had it all together. It wasn't just for the people who went to church more than half the time. This wasn't just for the people who wore the cool clothes or drove the cool cars. This wasn't just for the, the people who had it all together or who looked really religious. This was for all the people. This is for everyone. And if you want to learn anything from this dinner, this breakfast with Jesus, you can learn that your failures are no reason to push away from the table. Your failures are actually quite possibly the thing that should draw us closer to him. And that perhaps if the message of Jesus communicated by the church could look more like this meal, maybe more people in our world would come to the table. Maybe more people would feel that when we say you belong here, they would actually feel like they belonged. Because we share in the meal of imperfection. We've all experienced the grace of Jesus. And where things were bringing so much death and pain and destruction, now they have life. And as Jesus says, life to the full. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for just the things we learn from these meals. And Lord, I think about how sometimes our failures can be the things that handcuff us, keep us from wanting to pursue you. They can be the very thing that keep us away from or outside of the gathering of your people. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to rethink, reshape this message of belonging that the message of belonging doesn't just reside for the people who have it all together, but even the, fail, uh, the failures can be the very things that unite us. And Lord, may our lives, as we attempt to live in the direction that you called us to, may our lives reflect your grace and your love and your truth. And Lord, I believe that as we live in that message, it will transform this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.